Well, I want to make some general comments about Mother's Day before we pick up with our study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm sure many of you find your thoughts going to your own mother today. I realize we come from a variety of backgrounds and home environments, not all come from Christian families and so forth, but our thoughts go toward our mothers today. We understand that no mother is perfect, but many of us do recognize how our mothers loved us and cared for us, so we are truly grateful for them. Plus, we are grateful for the accounts of the many faithful women in God's words, the testimony, God's word, the testimony of, of godly women godly mothers as well in Scripture, women like uh, Jochebed. We don't uh, think of that name that often. It's not as familiar to us, but Jochebed was the mother of Moses, whose love and sacrifice ultimately helped deliver a nation. We think of uh, Ruth, who was a godly woman. She is an example of devotion to and love for her family as well as her love for God. She's an illustration to us of God's redemption. We think of Deborah. Deborah was a a woman who was a courageous warrior, but more important, a faithful woman of God. And of course, we're thrilled when we read of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the one who gave birth to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. My point is there are many examples of of godly, uh, wise women in Scripture, these women of influence, both in Scripture, in the past, women in the present as well, women we can learn much from about godliness and about courage and about wisdom. So it's good to have a a day like this. It's certainly a good thing to honor motherhood on a special day like this because we are thankful for our mothers and thankful for our wives who are faithful mothers to our children. Yet we also are grieved on a day like this, grieved with the low view of motherhood motherhood that does exist in our world today. The reality is that even though our culture uh, gives a nod to motherhood on a day like this and celebrates motherhood, there has been for a while now an undercurrent of thinking that actually demeans the role of motherhood. And this depreciation of the significance of motherhood has resulted in an increasing number of women choosing not to have children, even though they are physically able, which is a concept, of course, uh, foreign to Scripture. And in many other cases, the demeaning of the role of motherhood has led to this very unfortunate way of thinking, this unfortunate idea. It's this, that if a mother is not excelling in endeavors outside the home, then she should feel that somehow what she is doing is not significant and that she is possibly not rising up to her potential. This sad undercurrent of thinking is trying to get women to believe this, to believe that, well, you can pursue and have it all. In other words, that every woman can, and as one writer put it, should be the superwoman who has figured out how to be the CEO of a major corporation, find the cure to some disease, 
be successful change agent in her community in town and also raise some children all while she's completing her doctoral dissertation. I read this written by a man named Jonathan Connor. I don't really know who he is. He could be a pastor. It sort of felt like it was part of a sermon he preached maybe on Mother's Day. I'm not sure. But he said this, we live in an upside-down world. Our world tells women motherhood is a hindrance. Children are a drag. They'll hold you back. So if you want to do something important with your life and if you want to have a lot of nice things, you have to limit the other. So what do they offer women? Deliverance from the burden of children. How? Through the legal opportunity and social expectation to exercise a woman's right and choose fewer children or to not choose this particular child or to choose no children right now or to choose no children ever. Well, I'm not saying a woman can't achieve some wonderful and amazing things in the world. Of course she can. But I am saying that if she's a mother, nothing else she does is more significant than the role she fulfills in her home in the lives of her children. And if God in His sovereign will has given her children, then for her, motherhood is her highest calling. And if she is faithful to this calling, then she is indeed successful and effective in God's eyes, regardless of what else she does or does not do. Let's recognize another reality concerning motherhood. It's that being a mother is not only important work, it's hard work. I found this written. Consider the hats a mother wears. Chef, Dietitian, nurse, philosopher, cosmologist, mathematician, physician, lawyer, judge, spiritual director, moral compass, teacher of discernment, teacher of aesthetics, teacher of manners, temperance, and modesty, a life coach, personal manager, home organizer, chauffeur, referee, head janitor, imager of the church, and an example of faithfulness and respect to her husband. In short, a mother is a shaper of souls for time and for eternity. Her calling, along with fatherhood, is the greatest and highest vocation on earth. This author goes on to make this concluding statement and some advice. Don't ever make the mistake of asking a woman this. Do you work or do you stay at home? The fact is, mothers have an incredible job without pay, unless you have some sort of other arrangement there that I don't know about. No position in the business world compares to it. No position out there in the business world compares to the physical and the emotional and spiritual commitment that a woman has in motherhood. I did also find this humorous way of capturing the mother's powerful influence in the life of her child. A man is reminiscing about his own mother and all the things that she taught him. He says, my mother taught me so many godly virtues throughout my childhood that have stayed with me even to this day. And so he begins to list them. He said, first of all, my mother influenced me to pray. I can still hear hear her saying, you better pray that stain comes out of the carpet. (laughs) So I learned from that the importance of prayer. 
She instilled in me a sense of imagination. She would say, don't do that again or else. Or else what? I had to imagine it. She taught me about the concept of anticipation. Just wait until your father comes home. She taught me math. She taught me how to count, at least up to three. She taught me the essence of repentance. She said, don't you ever do that again. She taught me self-control. I can still hear her say this, don't touch anything. And then she'd often combine self-control with imagination. Don't touch anything or else. Well, we can highlight the role of motherhood a, a bit more biblically. Just for a moment, I want to comment on a, a passage outside our text. It's Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Just some more thoughts about Mother's Day. Titus 2, 4 and 5. It's a passage that runs countercultural to the view of the world about women. Here's what Titus 2, 4 and 5 say. Older women are to encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. I've taught on this before, and I'm not going to make comments about every single word, but one implication of that passage is that a woman is to have some priorities in her life. She's first of all to prioritize her commitment to her marriage. That's captured in verse 4 where it says older women are to encourage the young women to love their husbands. And second, a woman who has children is to prioritize her commitment then to motherhood. There's that phrase in verse 4, it says, teach the younger women to love their children. And that phrase means that a mother should grow in having this true maternal warmth and tenderness in her heart toward her children. It's this genuine affection for them that ends up being selfless and sacrificial And that kind of selfless love is expressed in her willingness to fulfill Ephesians 6.4, to consistently raise her children in the discipline or training of the Lord and to intentionally teach her children. No doubt the father ought to take the lead in all this. But that verse includes the fact that it's equally important for the mother to be diligent in that instruction. After all, think about it. In most cases, she's with the child more hours of the week than the father is. So she can have this unique and profound influence on her children. And then there's this third priority that's implied there. It's the woman's commitment to her home. There's that phrase in verse 5, teach her to be a worker at home. It's a very rare Greek term. It conveys two ideas, busyness, but a domestic-mindedness. So a woman is to be busy at the many, many, many domestic activities in her home. Why should this be a priority? Because a woman's greatest sphere of influence is her home. And I understand what Proverbs 31 teaches. I've taught on that as well. It teaches that a diligent homemaker may be involved in a wide range of activities and interests even outside the home. But if you really study that passage carefully, you can see that her home was her base of operations. Proverbs 31, 27 says, she looks well to the ways of her household. 
and does not eat the bread of idleness. So the point is not so much that a woman's only place is in the home, but that her main responsibility is for the home, regardless of what else she's doing. One more thing about that passage, that passage Titus adds some qualifying terms in verse 5, but there's that one, it's the word kind. She's to be kind. It's a word that means gentle, gracious. I mean, in this exalted role of mothering and homemaking and caring for children, she's got to, to fight the fleshly temptation of being a, a, a tyrant that's difficult to be around. I mean, just think about the incredible numbers of duties in the home and the incessant, never-ending needs of the family. All of that demands such a level of self-giving on her part that she can be tempted at times to be harsh to others. So Paul, or this passage in Titus, says that regardless of how much her patience is tried, and it will be tried many times, her kindness should keep shining through, never yelling at her husband or her children and never speaking to them in a harsh way, but always graciously. And obviously, this is so hard at times. In fact, mothers, moms, in your own strength, it's impossible. You can't live this out. But with the Lord's strength, as you humbly seek Him in prayer and His Word, this kindness can indeed be what your children will remember. Just a short look at the subject of motherhood, and I'm going to say something at the end today as well. And it's appropriate for me to make comments like that, to take that look, not only because it's Mother's Day, but because of what we do find in our next passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We have arrived at our study of verses 7 and 8, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. As you know, we've been looking at this chapter where Paul has been defending his ministry in Thessalonica, his ministry along with the ministry of his colleagues, the other missionaries, Silas and Timothy. They were being criticized and attacked. So he's defending their ministry and describing it. And in the description of their ministry, we actually find here how all genuine gospel ministers are recognized. So let me review quickly. First of all, They are to be known for, number one, the right courage. We saw that in verses 1 and 2, the right courage. True, genuine gospel ministers are characterized by this confident boldness in proclaiming the truth, regardless of the opposition, regardless of circumstances. They're marked, number two, by the right goal. That's a way to recognize a genuine minister, the right goal, verses 3 and 4. Their goal is pleasing God, it says. And then at verse 5, we arrived at the third way, the right approach. And this goes all the way through verse 8. Last time in verses 5 and 6, we began our study of this third way of recognizing genuine gospel ministers by discussion of how important motives are to God. God is not merely interested in just what we do. He cares about the how and He cares about the why. The fact is, good things can be done for the wrong motives, out of sinful motives. So the apostle lists in verses 5 and 6 some sinful motivations or at least some, some evidences, some signs that the motives are sinful. We noted together, first of all, manipulating people. Second, indulging self. 
Third, craving attention. So Paul says he and his colleagues were not guilty of those sins when it came to their ministry in Thessalonica. Their motives were not wrapped up in self and pleasing self that prompted them to just use and manipulate people and to indulge self and to crave attention from people. They were not like that. But just like we found on points one and two, on this third point, the passage turns from the negative now to the positive. The not side to the but this side. That's the significance of the little conjunction but at the beginning of verse 7. But, we've seen that before in the other sections, that the preposition for, the conjunction for, takes us into the negative side, what they were not. The conjunction but shows us what they were, what they were characterized by. So let's examine the positive side of this third way to recognize genuine spiritual leadership, the positive side, the right approach. And since this right approach depends on godly motives, now what we find Paul outlining for us are the proofs that verify a leader's motives are right. And there's two of them. First of all, the leader manifests this in his ministry. If his motives are right, if he has the right goal and so forth, and he's not focused on self, if he has a godly motive, He'll be manifesting this in his ministry. Number one, tender care. Tender care. Now, to make this point, Paul uses a very intimate metaphor to help describe the approach they took to ministry in Thessalonica. It's in verse 7. It's the metaphor of a mother. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Here's what Paul is saying. When they were in Thessalonica, they were not known for being distant from the people. They were not known for being cold and unapproachable, unreachable. unreachable. But instead, they were known for mingling with the people, even as equals. And we can conclude that from that little prepositional phrase, among you. He says in verse 7, we prove to be gentle among you. In other words, they intentionally spent time with people. And that is crucial in ministry. In fact, sometimes we like to say it this way to our seminary students. A good shepherd smells like the sheep. But while they intermingled with those Thessalonians, they did it a certain way. They weren't abusive. Instead, Paul and his helpers, he says, were gentle. That's the very opposite of being authoritarian in their leadership. So instead of being domineering in their role as as leaders or domineering because they were apostles or micromanaging other people, like we say, they demonstrated the utmost tenderness in how they cared for people. And to capture that idea, Paul compares them to that of a nursing mother. That metaphor conjures up one of the most tender scenes we can imagine. Now, interestingly, the term for mother can also be translated nurse, but it needs to be translated nursing mother here. This term is often used to refer not to a hired nurse or something like that. It's a a term often used to refer to the actual mother, such as the case here. The mother who is nursing her child. 
She's providing care for the child. And the term translated care is interesting. It literally means to warm something or someone. So here's the idea. Just as a mother takes that little child of hers in her arms and that child is warmed by the mother's own body heat, there is a warmth, Paul says, to our ministry. That's why this term care came to have a secondary meaning over time, to mean to care for tenderly, even to cherish. And that possessive pronoun her just adds to the tenderness of the scene. Again, not a hired nurse. It's her children. In fact, that pronoun her is emphasized in the Greek language just to mark the relationship as being one of great closeness. So again, the missionaries were not harsh. They were not tyrants. They were not indifferent to people. They were tenderly nurturing people. And this is the kind of tender, caring leadership that churches need. Church is made up of the God's sheep, and the sheep need leaders known for being kind. Leaders who are known for accepting other people, being respectful of others. Leaders known for compassion, leaders known for tolerance of people's imperfections. Leaders who are patient, soft-hearted, loyal to their people. Sheep need spiritual leaders who minister with a mother's gentleness, with a mother's sense of tender care. That's a proof that a man's motives are godly. There's a second proof of godly motives here, and thus a mark of the right approach to ministry. Leaders manifest also this, number two, sacrificial love, tender care and sacrificial love. Obviously, these two are related. Verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Now, note that beginning phrase. It's only found, it's only in the New Testament, it's only used here. Having so fond an affection for you. Kind of wordy. You could also translate it just simply this way. We loved you so much. But it does mean to long for someone. You, you long for them passionately and earnestly. So he's talking about the missionaries in Thessalonica. They knew this constant yearning for those people, so much so it says they were well pleased or delighted in continually doing something. He says sharing their whole being with them. And that's what the term translated lives or souls conveys. It stands for the whole being, the whole personality. To put it differently, the missionaries didn't just come into the city and start giving the people information. They sacrificially gave themselves. And it is this giving of self that is of the very essence of genuine Christian ministry. And at the end of the verse, we found out why they were so delighted to do this, why they were so willing to share their whole beings, their lives. It says, because they had become so dear to them. That term dear or beloved just points to the self-giving, sacrificial quality of love, agape love. Therefore, 
such personal affection and a willingness to sacrifice themselves, Paul is saying was not just out of a sense of obligation alone alone, or duty alone. As important as that is, leaders must sense their calling and the duty and obligation that goes with that. But it wasn't just that alone, Paul says. It was rather the highest joy, the, the highest sense of delight of their hearts to love the people in the very depths of their beings. Of course, don't misunderstand when he says we did not just give you the gospel of God. When I say they didn't just give them information, it doesn't mean that they gave no information to them. They did. They did give them the gospel of God. In fact, they intentionally went to Thessalonica to do that, to preach the gospel, and they did faithfully. And when it says they preached the gospel here, it doesn't mean some simple watered-down version of it. Implicit in the expression, the gospel gospel of God is a fullness of doctrine that includes the justification, the doctrine of what it means to stand justified before God in imputed righteousness, the whole doctrine of sanctification, what it means to, to grow in gospel truth, and the whole doctrine of glorification. In fact, it's the gospel of God. It's His gospel. He's the source of the gospel. Therefore, everything about God, including His sovereignty and His election of His people, is included. In reality, all the New Testament teaching relates to the complete gospel in some way. So just an editorial comment. Sometimes I hear churches make a big deal out of the fact that we we just have a gospel focus. That's all we're about. But if they're not teaching the completeness of all that doctrine, including the doctrine of God's sovereignty in every way, it's not wrong for us to question whether or not they really do have a gospel focus at all. It's the gospel of God and the whole realm of the teaching that goes with it. Well, back to our text. The point is that the missionaries did give them the gospel of God, but they did not just teach and preach. They taught and they preached, but Paul and Silas and Timothy also shared their own lives. So again, the metaphor of the mother is so appropriate for this. A woman who understands and seeks to fulfill her biblical role of motherhood does the same thing when she, at great sacrifice, at grace great cost to herself, unselfishly and generously sets aside her life for the benefit of her children out of her love for them. What a metaphor. Of course, Jesus is the greatest example of this. The greatest example of not holding on to rights, the greatest example of sacrificial love, when that even while we were yet sinners, He died for us. Listen, it only makes sense for ministers to study a passage like this, to hear it preached, to hear myself preach it. It only makes sense that we as your leaders would be continually praying that God would help us to confront the selfishness that we find to be so natural in our hearts. That we would be constantly praying for God to chip away at that and to warm our hearts, to grant to our hearts this increasing portion of the great love that Jesus has for every sheep in his flock, that we would have that love. 
This marks genuine gospel ministry, the right courage, the right goal, the right approach. Well, you look back over chapter 2 here and all that we've studied about leadership, and we could say that this kind of godly leadership is nothing like the distorted view of leadership that's out in the world in many examples, places. It's nothing like the distorted view of leadership that even our flesh creates. It's, it's nothing like the, the sense of or the model of dominance that's out in the world. But regardless, this is God's definition of leadership. And the fact remains that leadership that's marked by the right activity and the right message and the right integrity and the right motives behind the preaching and carried out in a tender manner that's guided by love will be exactly what verse 1 says. If you go back to verse 1, it will not be in vain. just want to give you a few closing thoughts, though, today. First of all, I want to make a comment about the Expositor's Seminary. This passage is a good reminder of why we are so grateful that God has given Twin City Bible Church the incredible privilege of having a seminary campus at our church. But think rightly about it. The seminary is not just located here. It is an integral part of the fabric of the entire ministry of our church. And it's exciting because through that seminary, we are seeking to train men to be the kind of leaders that Paul has been discussing in chapter 2. We don't just give them theology. We talk a lot about tenderology, shepherding, caring for people, and God's standard of what that means. What a thrill. Me and these young men who have their hearts set on ministry are learning that. And as you interact with them and have them over for dinner or ask them how they're doing or spend time with them, you're playing a role in helping to train them for that purpose. And many of us aren't going to be here in the years ahead when they are still ministering in some church somewhere or in some country somewhere as a missionary. And we will have had a part in the legacy of what they're doing, that gospel ministry that's characterized by tender care and sacrificial love. I'm so thankful for the Expositor Seminary here. Second comment, it's a comment about leadership in other contexts besides just pastors and leaders and elders. A comment about other leadership contexts. What we find here about pastors and elders and missionaries can be instructive to leaders in all the various ministries of our church. In other words, there are people, many of you involved in ministry. You're involved in children's ministry or student ministry or men's ministry, women's ministry, and so forth. And you have a role there. And maybe you're leading out in certain ways, taking care of certain things. There's leadership being exercised there. What we have learned here applies to you. It's instructive to leaders in business, in the business world, It's instructive to leaders in our government. I do hope they're watching the live stream right now. It's instructive to leaders in the home, fathers, 
husbands, mothers. What do I mean by all that? If you get back and see the kind of leadership that's pictured here in 1 Thessalonians 2, some might look at it and go, man, this is this sort of weak leadership. It's, it's kind of sentimental. I think it's going to be unproductive, especially in the business world. It's going to be tough. It's not sentimental and weak. What is presented here is a picture of strength, not weakness. And therefore, it is what can make any leader more effective. You're a strong leader if you're willing to humble yourself to express gentleness and tenderness to those you lead. You're a strong leader if you seek to be considerate in how you go about making your decisions and then how you convey them to other people. You're strong if you seek to make those you work with and those who work around you, you're strong if you seek to make them feel a sense of ownership in things, if you seek to make them feel that their opinions and their perspectives are important. That's strong. In contrast, it's not a form of strength to be severe. It's not strength to be harsh and gruff and hard and live and operate as if the end result or the task is all that matters. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Relationships are more important than those tasks. What's interesting about all this is a book I read years ago. It's a secular book, a best-selling secular book. sells millions of copies. The short title is Good to Great. It has a longer rest of the title, okay? Good to great. It's about management. It's written by a man named Jim Collins. So he's not coming from a biblical viewpoint or anything, but it's, it's examining companies who have somehow transitioned from being just good, solid companies to so-called great companies. And then why some companies fail to make that transition. And he examines a lot of different aspects of business and commerce and business life and all that. But one of the things he examines is leadership. I was looking for the book yesterday so I could get it right, what I'm going to say here. I can't say to anything specific because I couldn't find my book. It's in the house somewhere. I think my grandkids have been reading it or something. Maybe they're, I don't know. But what's interesting in the stuff about leadership is how surprising how the successful leaders of these great companies demonstrate biblical character. Even though the individuals, neither the individuals nor the book ever puts it in those terms at all. But things about humility and causing others to thrive. My point is being a domineering, micromanaging leader is not good in any context. And even many secular managers and executives have discovered that. But God cares about us and how we lead others. Lastly, just a final word then to mothers today, to come full circle. I want to do two things. I want to challenge you with something, but I want to encourage you before we end. Here's the challenge. It's something my wife passed on to me a while back, and I don't know where it came from. And so when I found it, I asked her, and she read it, and she said, huh, I don't know where I got that either. She's trying to figure out who it was. It's written by a mother. And it's a challenge to other mothers. Here's what it says. Because of the world we live in today, 
Today's mothers need to take their responsibility more seriously than ever. The culture is changing drastically, and conservative Christians are more and more in the minority on crucial moral and political issues. What kind of society are our children going to grow up in? Their faith will be attacked and their beliefs challenged. We, as mothers, must take seriously the task of teaching our children biblical truth, of doing our best to help them know what they believe and why they believe it. We need to teach them Scripture through every means possible, reading, hearing, memorizing, and singing. Moms need to diligently work at building a calm and orderly home that will be a place of peace for their family. We, she says, need to constantly deal with heart issues, and I think she means her own and the heart issues of the children, like pride and selfishness, anger, impatience, jealousy, and envy. We need to work on key character traits, love for others, patience, honesty, loyalty, kindness, faithfulness, self-sacrifice, and industriousness. We need to teach our children to love and support and encourage one another. But most of all, we need to consistently present the true gospel to our children and pray faithfully for their salvation. It's well said by a mother. The point is these are challenging times. This is no time for slacking off. Of course, that's that's predicated on having a certain kind of mindset. It's a long-term, eternal mindset rather than a short-term, temporal one. What do I mean by that? Mothers, fathers too, you must think about what matters. What will last forever? Pour your time and effort into those things is my point. And that means choosing sometimes not to waste time on frivolous things or to become out of balance in the time we spend on social media, or out of balance in how we encourage our children in sports and hobbies and so forth. But don't get me wrong. Those things can all be wonderful. They can all be profitable in a limited degree. It's just be careful. Don't be so distracted or get so out of balance to the point that you're putting so much time and effort into the things that are less important than your children's spiritual training and education, that that goes by the wayside. That's the challenge, most of that from another mother. What I want to end with is something that will encourage you, I believe, mothers. You see, you hear the standard, you hear the requirements, you even look at the fact that, my goodness, Paul even used the metaphor of a mother to set the standard so high for what leaders ought to be. So perhaps you wonder at times if you're, Cutting the mustard, we say. Perhaps you wonder if times, if you're accomplishing anything of significance at all, I'm here to tell you that you are. And again, to tell you that you won't be perfect in this. You won't be perfect in your role as you seek to fulfill the high calling of motherhood. In fact, most mothers here and listening to me likely experience times of worry and anxiety and fear and disappointment. Times where they're craving just some space physically and emotionally from the children. Times where they feel guilt and shame. Times where they're overwhelmed with a sense of the competition when they look at maybe other families, other mothers. Maybe times even of anger. Perhaps you entered marriage and motherhood with some unrealistic expectations of how it all would be. 
And even that's added to the feeling of, of shame and being ashamed at times. So listen carefully to me. Again, I said, you won't achieve perfection in the fulfillment of your responsibilities, but you can, with the Lord's help, achieve the right direction. You can pass on a measure of these important lessons to your children, and that is significant because that pleases God. And take some encouragement in something I'm going to read to you that I found. I think it's from a pastor in Texas at Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas, a man named Jack Graham. He's making some applications to mothers from Romans 8 verse 1. I'll remind you what Romans 8 1 says. It's something for all of us in Christ. It says in Romans 8 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Here's how he applies it to mothers. Listen. Mothers, he writes, if you are in Christ Jesus, you ought to have no fear of condemnation. You stand in righteousness and are loved by God as his daughter because of Christ's work on your behalf on the cross. Then he gets very specific. Mothers, Even though you may feel that you are condemned, you are not condemned by your messy home. You are not condemned by your lack of desire to homeschool. You are not condemned by your personal sins. You are not condemned by the difficulty of caring for your special needs child, a difficulty which wounds down deep. You are not condemned by the knowledge of how easy it is for you to love one child more than another. You are not condemned by your miscarriages. You are not condemned by your lack of desire to have more kids. You are not condemned because you have no desire to adopt. You are not condemned, even though you feel it, when you read over and over about others' perfect parenting moments on Facebook. You are not condemned by your inability to cook. You are not condemned because your kids are not normal. You are not condemned because you are divorced and doing it alone. You are not condemned by your desire to be alone, away from the kids for a time every single day. You are not condemned by your body, which may not be what it once was. You are not condemned by your repeated failures as a mother. You are not condemned by your rebellious children. You are not condemned by the frustration of having to scrape mac and cheese off the kitchen floor again. You're not condemned by all the fears and tears which flirt with insanity and take you to the precipice of despair. You're not condemned by not being able to throw the birthday party of the year for your kids. You're not condemned for feeding your kids food that did not come from Whole Foods. You're not condemned because you cannot take your kids on exciting vacations. You're not condemned for not living up to the standards of your mother or mother-in-law. You are not condemned by the stares of those who have no kids when yours erupt in volcanic screams in public places. Mothers, even though you may feel condemned, if you are in Christ, you are not condemned. That is the reality. You are not condemned because if you are in Christ, His righteousness is yours. Therefore, enjoy the unending love and affection and acceptance of being a beloved daughter. 
perfectly loved with an unwavering love that flows from your Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you first of all for this passage that has challenged my own heart to examine my own motives, to confess my own weaknesses of what it means to be a genuine gospel minister. I thank you for the encouragement, though, that the passage gives us that in Christ that we can live out a measure of these standards. And I thank you for the beautiful metaphor of a nursing mother that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to use. I thank you that the timing of our study of it hit on Mother's Day. So, Father, I do pray for the women of this church. I thank you for the the strong, faithful, godly women, so many in this church that have impacted this church so much and that are so important to the life of this church. Thank you for them. Thank you for the many mothers that are here, some that have already given a lifetime to raising children, and the children are, are gone now. They look back over it and maybe have regrets at times. Comfort their hearts. Make them thrilled over what you allowed them to do all those years. Some have lost children already. Bring comfort to their hearts, the comfort only you can bring. I pray for those who long for children and don't have children yet. I pray you would encourage their hearts, comfort them. But help every woman here, every man here, once again, capture the dignified view of motherhood that's found in Scripture. Thank you for our mothers. And Lord, I pray that when they feel inadequate, when they feel regrets, you would cause them to reflect upon Romans 8.1, that there's no condemnation, but that you're a loving Father, whoever beckons them onward to grow, to improve, to pursue what's right, afresh and anew again, as long as they live. May you thrill their hearts with that adventure. In Christ's name, amen.